The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. Um, And we have, I think, a very interesting show in terms of we'll be discussing addiction, alcoholism, and co-occurring psychiatric disorders, as well as pain management. And we're very lucky to have with us today two um, esteemed physicians from the Mayo Clinic. Um, Our first guest is Dr. Mark Fry, who is the Chair in Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at the Mayo Clinic. And our other guest is Dr. Terry Sneakloff, who is co-chair of the Division of Addiction, Pain, and Transplant Psychiatry and Psychology, and he is the director of the Mayo Addiction Services at the Mayo Clinic. So thank you both for being our guest today. Thank you, Mary, for having us. Good to be with you. I was just wondering if you could begin um, to share with our audience a little bit about what made you decide to get into the treatment of people with addictive disorders, because it's not a... Uh, a specialty that a lot of people jump into. So, Yes, I can take that question. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Schneekloth. I began my residency in psychiatry at the Mayo Clinic and was particularly interested in anxiety and depressive disorders. And when I had an opportunity to begin working with addicted patients in our unit, I saw that so many of these patients had uh, comorbid disorders or what we call co-occurring disorders. The other term might be dual diagnosis where it wasn't just the depression or anxiety, but it was the depression and anxiety with addiction that we really had a small percent of our patients with addictions that did not have other psychiatric problems that uh, needed to be addressed at the same time in order for them to do well. So that's really what sparked my interest. Uh, I was very fortunate to work under the the man, Dr. Robert Morse, who established addiction treatment at Mayo 40 years ago, and he was very attuned to the importance of treating the comorbid psychiatric disorders in addicted patients and really established from the very beginning multidisciplinary teams with addiction counselors, uh, addiction nurses, psychologists, psychiatrists who could work together to address the medical, the psychiatric, and the addiction uh, in looking at overall wholeness and wellness in patients. Mary, I might add, um, so uh, good to be here with uh, you and my colleague, Terry Sneakloth. My name is Mark Fry. I'm a psychiatrist here at Mayo. And I think one reason um, uh, Terry and I are, are such a good team is we really, um, in our everyday practice right now, <clears throat> are taking care of these patients with co-occurring addiction um, and uh, mood and anxiety disorders, but 
kind of approaching it from um, different sides, which I think ultimately uh, is uh, the best way to have collaborative teams really approaching this complicated patient population. So my training as a psychiatrist um, was focused exclusively in mood disorders, and, and I was interested in learning more research methodologies, so did a research fellowship at NIH, and having left those hallowed halls, I found myself in um, big hospital centers and, and clinics with lots of different types of patients, and while my focus was on mood disorders, bipolar illness in particular, it became very clear to me as an as a active clinician, that if I was going to really make any progress in addressing mood symptoms in my patients, that I had to quickly um, uh, be a better student in understanding addiction because I had found the majority of my bipolar patients, either current or in the past, had had an addiction problem, and it was very clear that that these problems are linked, and we in the everyday approach of really getting the best outcome for patients in our clinics here at Mayo, we've got to be we've got to be addressing both simultaneously. Would you explain a little bit more to our audience about how these are linked? Well, the the term so my comment about linking them now. Um, what, you can think about that in any number of ways, and I think uh, for clinicians uh, or um, Patients who might uh, be listening uh, in, in a clinical way, we see, length means they commonly co-occur or they are comorbid or one patient has both problems. Um, sometimes we'll see mood disorders that uh, will start in um, people in their young adolescent years that they then use alcohol or drugs to self-medicate. Sometimes we'll see um, individuals who first start with a substance abuse problem and it becomes clear that there are secondary uh, problems of anxiety or uh, depression that are a resultant of that. So one way to think about length is that we see them co-occur, they walk hand in hand, or one can negatively impact the other. I think additionally I would add that you can think about linked in that there may actually be similar underlying genetic risk for these illnesses that uh, perhaps one person has primarily presented as a mood disorder and and another primarily presenting as a substance abuse problem. That's been one theory of current research, particularly in bipolar disorder, just because we see these uh, these illnesses, uh, bipolar disorder and addiction, bipolar disorder and alcoholism, so frequently uh, co-occur. But I, I think for the purposes of this talk, you know, linked just means that they um, have such common overlap that we see them in tandem with each other. I just added that that we've been helped in understanding some of this linkage through uh, large national epidemiologic studies. Um, you know, the most prominent over the past de decade, referred to as the NISARC study, uh, coming out of the National Institute of Health, in which 40,000 Americans were interviewed on two occasions. And the study was looking at alcoholism and drug addictions, but these patients were also interviewed for other disorders. And it was quite striking 
what percent of the population that had alcohol or drug addictions also had these co-occurring disorders with them. And so as, as Mark has mentioned, there may be these underlying genetic underpinnings, some of which may be similar between the disorders, some of which there may be linkage between the disorders. Um, I would just say another um, linkage that we see, and this can be a very confusing part for the clinician, is that, uh, for instance, someone who has both depression and alcoholism may come into treatment and it may become clear that they had depression before they ever became alcoholic, two more separate disorders. Uh, there may be other patients whose depression developed in the midst of their alcoholism and was actually caused by the alcohol itself, what we would refer to as a substance-induced disorder. And when the drinking ends, the depression lifts. And so that, that kind of linkage and that sort of sorting out which came first, how are the two related, uh, it's very important in guiding the clinician in how to treat uh, the individual um, as to whether they would need medications, additional therapy for the depression as opposed to primary addiction therapy. So those linkage issues are, are really uh, critical for diagnostic clarity and guiding a, a, a good treatment plan for someone in the long term. You know, you're you're bringing up a really wonderful point in terms of, you know, the diagnostic um, process for for folks who have alcoholism, other drugs of abuse. Um, and what do you consider to be the best way to do a diagnosis when when you have somebody in front of you who clearly has signs of both depression and um, alcoholism or bipolar disorder and cocaine addiction? How do you make that differential diagnosis? Uh, Mark, would you like to start with that, or would you like me? You know, um, why don't we, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, Terry, you know, Mary, so Terry and I are just, I'm thinking of typical ways we'll see patients, and and um, I'm wondering if it might be helpful to kind of talk about how that assessment is made in our addiction program first, and then I can kind of speak to how we might fine-tune that in our outpatient mood clinic. Sure. Well, an example of that might be within our system where someone with an identified alcohol or drug use problem um, calls us, their family calls, their physician refers them in, and we'd begin by taking uh, a detailed uh, nursing assessment to review for you know, their acute state, you know, to use medical tests, just even a basic urine screen for drug abuse to find out what uh, what drugs they have on board at the time that may be affecting uh, their emotional state, and then do a detailed addiction assessment while also doing a psychiatric evaluation. Now, sometimes that psychiatric evaluation may be more limited to begin with uh, because the individual is really experiencing an emotional state more acutely affected by recent drug use. So sometimes we're able to do it right at the beginning, or sometimes we may need to wait until an individual has, has been detoxified, in which we, uh, as an addiction psychiatrist, I might do that assessment myself, or in the case of a more complicated combination of, say, alcoholism and bipolar disorder, I would refer that individual on to Dr. Fry for his expertise in bipolar illness for a more detailed assessment if the mood fluctuations 
you know, aren't entirely clear what this represents, whether it's part of the addiction, part of the individual's personality, or uh, a true bipolar disorder. So our system, you know, may move someone between uh, experts in various fields to come out with that diagnostic clarity and initiate what should our treatment plan be, which course of action do we begin with in their treatment. Um, you know, using the same example of bipolar illness and you know, acute drug withdrawal. If their mood is you know, sufficiently unstable to be in the in a um, alcohol and drug treatment program, they may need to begin their care in a, in a mood disorder setting where the physician and the patient can work together and in, in stabilizing the mood uh, enough to be able to engage more fully in addiction treatment. Mark thinks that you'd have to add for that. No, I, I think you know. To me, um, the I think the salient points um, are really taking the time to um, try to dissect out some of these temporal relationships because I think it it then really helps clarify what treatment options um, should or should not be considered and and how to really set up a treatment plan that. Will hopefully that will hopefully address uh, sobriety, pain control, and, and mood. The when we get um, patients that come into our mood clinic, and our clinic here at Mayo really is evaluating patients with difficult to treat depression or bipolar disorder. We quite commonly see um, issues related to substance use. Um, alcohol use, uh, pain medication management that's of concern. And in the flip side of, uh, you know, how uh, Terry was talking about this, um, uh, obviously the, the, the patient has decided that their mood is uh, needing to be addressed. That's why they made an appointment to see us. But we, we have to make that careful assessment as to what um, uh, substance abuse issues are there and we will focus on sort of what happened first. So, for example, um, very often... Can we wait till the commercial break and then we'll get back to the example? Oh, sure. And, okay, I'm sorry. We'll be right back after this commercial. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
Leadership is a destination. But how do you get there? More importantly, how do you maximize your power and influence and develop more leaders in your organization? Learn from proven leaders and proven practices. Join Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler for Leadership Development News. This program will help you develop the next leaders in your organization, balance your work life, manage your boss, and manage yourself. We'll feature cutting-edge interviews with industry experts and authors. Leadership Development News, every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today we're talking about the challenges of treating alcoholism and co-occurring psychiatric disorders with our guest, Dr. Mark Fry, who is the chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Terry Sneakwath, who is the co-chair of the Division of Alcoholism and Pain and Transplant Psychiatry and Psychology and is the director of the Mayo Addiction Services at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Um, before I had to interrupt you to go to break, you were starting to give us an example. Could you continue with that? Sure, Mary. So we were just talking about the complexities of um, uh, making a diagnosis with these um, co-occurring sets of symptoms of alcoholism, addiction, pain, and, and mood and anxiety. And here at our Depression Center of Mayo, when we see these patients quite frequently, I might add, um, there's always um, the creation of a timeline, you know, trying to get a sense of what symptoms started first. Were they really symptoms of mood and anxiety and maybe the drugs and alcohol were a self-medication type of intervention? Or was it primarily a substance abuse problem with the substances creating a secondary uh, mood disorder or a secondary set of anxiety symptoms? That's often one of the first things we do to try to distinguish these primary and secondary syndromes. I think another important piece that clinicians need to take the time to do well is trying to look for where there are periods of sustained sobriety um, and then to reassess for those mood and anxiety symptoms. Because if we find an episode of major depression or panic disorder or a manic episode when drugs and alcohol were not part of the picture, we know that there's a primary mood disorder that's going to have to be treated in the context of their addiction program. When I started in this profession about 30 years ago, the rule of thumb was if someone's depressed, if, if it, someone comes in and they're getting treatment for alcoholism and they're depressed, then you wait a year, and if they're still depressed at the end of the year, then it might be depression. Um, I don't think we're still doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Uh, you know, um, a kernel of truth is that uh, if, the, if the disorder is truly induced by the drug, um, then those symptoms are going to begin to clear relatively rapidly. And, you know, one of the leaders in our field, uh, Dr. Mark Shuckett in San Diego, did a wonderful study looking at um, how depression tended to improve over the course of the month of treatment in, in many men in treatment. And this was an early study. Um, but 
if it is induced by the substance, it will generally resolve within two to four weeks. And so that change in mood should be incurring rapidly. And what we've come to see is that if the mood doesn't begin to improve, that persistent depression uh, may indeed become a trigger for craving and a, traving, uh, a trigger for relapse. And so really setting an individual up to go back to drinking. One of our studies here at Mayo and in recent, um, in actually just in recent months, uh, pursued by my colleagues Dr. Karpiak and Dr. Abul Saud, has been looking at, uh, in men in particular, male alcoholics uh, who have persistent depression are much more likely to have cravings when their mood is depressed. And that can also be seen in, in our, our, our female population, but we found it even much more profound in the men. And so if those disorders are not treated early on, we may be setting our patients up to not do well. And Dr. Fry is very familiar with this in bipolar disorder, where if those mood symptoms aren't treated and the individual you know, goes into a, a, a deep depression or becomes hypomanic or manic, it may be um, a, a trigger for relapse rapidly after completing treatment. You know, Mary, I would just add to, to Terry's comments, I think, <clears throat> Um, I, I think the world of addiction medicine and the world of mood and anxiety disorders are working together now in ways that we never really have before. And, I, and to me, it really underscores the critical importance of these early days of sobriety where people have completed their program, their detox, they're motivated, they're excited, they're scared. It's a it's a highly vulnerable time, and I I think with Terry's work here, I, we've really begun we've I've really begun to appreciate just the the vulnerability that is there, and, and it just seems so unfortunate to have a mood disorder <clears throat> or an anxiety disorder inadequately treated or inappropriately treated that really you know, sets up someone to relapse very quickly, um, which then sets, a, you know, can set a tailspin of all sorts of um, disappointments and demoralization and, and need for, uh, you know, recurrent intensive addiction treatment. So that interface right after programming, I think, is, in, is terribly critical to recognize those symptoms of anxiety and depression. But, you know, if you think about it from a medical perspective, that's really isn't that the best treatment? Because if somebody has diabetes and hypertension, we don't segregate them and say, you know, when you've managed your diabetes, we'll treat your hypertension. Um, you know, we treat them concurrently. And um, it's it's nice to hear that there's more interface between the two disciplines um, because historically that hasn't been um, what's happened. No, I, I think you're really touching on a very important point Mary, that the you know the individual we need to look at wholeness here. We we've uh, the American Medical Association has been calling you know addiction a brain disease for well over 50 years, but it often isn't approached as one disease we need to be treating along with others. And uh, we you know firmly believe at, at Mayo that a, you know strong treatment will look at medical problems, you know, the psychiatric, the addiction. Will address spiritual issues, you know, within one treatment and approach the individual as a whole and look at their overall wellness. 
Um, could you both kind of uh, speak to the importance of um, the timing of the intervention when somebody has a comorbid disorder? Sure. I'd be glad to, to jump in on that. Um, this, I believe, really gets at the issue of individualized treatment because with so many psychiatric disorders, um, it can really vary based upon the disorder, you know, perhaps even based upon the addiction. Um, you know, a general principle is that we would do an assessment of all the problems and those that can be treated in a straightforward manner early on, we would. An example might be someone who, you know, has a uh, significant depressive disorder coming into treatment for alcoholism. They may begin early on on an antidepressant medication uh, there may be co some components of psychotherapy along with their primary addiction treatment. Um, another very significant disorder where there may be overlap between the disorders would be post-traumatic stress disorder related to um, a trauma. Um, for instance, in the instance of childhood abuse of many kinds, there may be later uh, substance experimentation, substance abuse. If someone comes into our addiction program that has a, a history of trauma, we would, we would assess that. We would probably have initial sessions between the individual and the therapist to really support them, affirm them, allow them to uh, share what they wish to share about that trauma. And what our clinical experiences generally uh, ben, is that the individual just feels so affirmed and empowered and relieved to disclose the past abuse that that really frees them up to then focus on their addiction recovery over the next several weeks. And we would hold off on further psychotherapy and you know, we would be acknowledging the significance of that while recognizing that generally people feel very emotionally vulnerable and aren't prepared to do the kind of psychotherapy that will help them to do well in the long run until they've been abstinent for a period of time. Some of this is, is simply related to the effect of the alcohol or drugs on an individual's brain that they need several weeks of abstinence before they can enter psychotherapy and process something that has been very painful to them from their past. So. You know, just contrasting those two. One, we might begin treatment very readily when they come in. Um, another, we might be staging it based upon, you know, the patient's needs. Is there anything that would, um, when we think about people coming in for treatment, um, you know, I think an important part of what makes treatment successful is, as you said earlier, is being able to look at the person as an individual so that um, an intervention um, may be brief or it may be a family intervention. Um, what has been your kind of experience with brief interventions or, or with family interventions? Um, well, we, you know, are looking... Uh, actually instituting increasingly brief interventions for substance abuse within our primary care settings at the Mayo Clinic. And brief interventions have been found to be very helpful with uh, substance misuse 
at times substance abuse. Uh, perhaps less helpful if we're talking about, you know, substance dependence. So the brief intervention may be that first step in, in moving an individual towards considering addiction treatment. Uh, family interventions are often extremely powerful in addressing denial that an individual has about the impact of their addiction on their life and that just the nature of addiction, that the one who has it inherently struggles to see how this is affecting them, how it is affecting those around them. So, you know, the type of intervention I believe you're, you know, thinking of where a number of concerned people would get together, maybe coworker, family members, close friends, and just honestly sharing some of the facts of how they're concerned, how they love them, but, you know, this is what I'm seeing and I believe that you need to get help. And often after that type of intervention, or even confrontation for one family member saying you have to get help that brings people in to see us. So I believe that's very important. And we'll be right back um, with our guests. If you have any questions, please give us a call. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. In your family, what is most important to you? Is it health? Relationships? How about getting along better with your kids or your parents? Maybe it has to do with losing pounds or gaining financially. Whatever the problems you face in your family, you'll want to tune in to Family First with your host, author, and speaker, Randy Rolfe. Since 1985, Randy has become the foremost expert on matters concerning the family, and she can help you. Family First airs live every Friday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today we're talking about the challenges of treating alcoholism and co-occurring psychiatric disorders with Dr. Mark Fry, who is the Chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Terry Sneakwalk, who is the Co-Chair, Division of of Addiction, Pain, and Transplant Psychiatry and Psychology. He's also the Director of um, the Mayo Addiction Services at the Mayo Clinic. Um, You know, we were talking while you all were listening to the commercial, and the whole concept of co-occurring disorders is, is kind of a big 
uh, gray area because oftentimes programs say they treat dual disorders, but in effect, they may treat one disorder if the other one's stable. The other challenge um, that I've experienced is that there are some medications for addiction that have been developed, and um, I'm, I think Dr. Uh, Sneakloff is going to talk to us about that, but there are also physicians who don't believe they work effectively because they don't work for everyone. And could could you guys kind of speak to both of those? Uh, dilemmas. Sure, I, you know, just thinking of, um, you know, the, the the concept you were saying uh, about pain and co-occurring disorders, Mary, I um, was just contemplating, you know, what comes first for many of those patients because as uh, individuals come to Mayo experiencing very significant pain are often referred to our pain rehabilitation program, which is within our Department of Psychiatry. And they come with the co-occurrence of high doses of opioid or narcotic analgesics. So they're taking very high doses. They perhaps have a history of substance abuse. They have psychiatric problems. And, and then this pain, which is overwhelming their lives. And so within our addiction programs, we work closely with our pain group, and we may see uh, a mix of problems. Occasionally, we see people who were addicted uh, to alcohol, so they were alcoholic, they developed pain, and then they, they became hooked or addicted to the narcotic pain medications after that. Uh, many of these individuals just have a strong predisposition to um, uh, cross addiction, and when they are taken off their narcotic pain medications, rather than doing worse and not being able to manage their pain, actually are much higher functioning, uh, are able to think much more clearly, are able to engage in their recovery again, and do tremendously well. We we're seeing uh, individuals that have no history of addiction who have been put on very high doses commonly of narcotic pain medications. And much of the, the pain research is increasingly indicating that individuals do better without taking those narcotics. They experience less pain. The pain doesn't go away, but they're able to utilize strategies for managing that pain, and they have an improved quality of life off of the pain medications. Um, sometimes we treat the addiction first and then clear them off alcohol medications uh, such as the narcotic painkillers and then move them on to the pain program. Other times it's the other way around. They first need to learn how to manage their pain without the pain medications and then they're able to again explore how do I stay in recovery? How do I avoid going back to alcohol and those prescription painkillers? So in that sense, we you know move pretty fluidly between our our divisions here based upon what the focus problem is, and uh, sometimes treating both at the same time, sometimes treating them sequentially, so that we're able to individualize that. What about um, the, the medications that have been um, developed for the treatment of addiction, such as um, a camprosate? or naltrexone um, or suboxone or, for that matter, abuse and methadone? These medications, you know, are playing an increasing role in managing addiction. 
Um, you know, I'd divide them in two groups. You mentioned the, the methadone, the buprenorphine, which are replacement uh, narcotic medications for people who have an opioid or narcotic addiction. And they may be a shorter-term medication to help an individual stabilize who's moving towards an abstinence base eventually, and buprenorphine is often used in that way. And sometimes they become long-term treatments or stabilization. Um, what is often complex in using those medications is uh, the recovery community, which uh, tends to be abstinence-based, um, and these individuals who are on replacement medications don't always uh, work well together, though many uh, AA groups or Narcotics Anonymous groups are welcoming of individuals who are trying to stabilize and get into recovery. And that can be a very healthy thing. It's been our experience at Mayo and certainly experience of many care providers nationally that narcotic addicts who perhaps have other addictions as well stabilize or abstinent from everything except the buprenorphine, uh, which helps them stabilize their narcotic addiction. So they would do active recovery work and AA, NA through treatment programs while on buprenorphine, and then you know, determine an individualized goal in the future whether they're going to try to come off the buprenorphine as well. And that greatly helps to stabilize their lives. Now, this other group of medications, and I think we're you know, just in the early stages of development of medications that can target cravings to drink alcohol, cravings for other substances. You know, there is much research underway to help individuals decrease the intensity of their craving using the brain mechanism of what is causing them to crave and compulsively use. Uh, Antabuse is an old medication uh, which causes individuals to become acutely ill if they drink, and so that's really a deterrent agent as opposed to relatively newer medications, the naltrexone, which gets at a mechanism in the brain that gives the person a sense of reward when they drink, or a camprosate, uh, a newer medication that uh, gets at the mechanism of, of craving itself in alcoholics and the degree of agitation they may be feeling, particularly in the early uh, days of their abstinence in which they uh, are calmed by alcohol, but a camprosate may get at that, gets at that mechanism in the brain and so diminishes their craving. So, you know, we're, we're in the pioneering stages, but these medications have helped many people in their early recovery. So we view them as a tool along with other tools coming through treatment, whether it be cognitive behavioral tools, whether it be getting involved in 12-step in recovery work. This is, is part of treating uh, the, the uh, illness of addiction. And so we utilize those tools and believe other addiction treatment programs should be using them as well. I would add, Mary, that I think um, the the field is moving forward to better understand how to use uh, these medications in combination, uh, not only with themselves, but in combination with antidepressants, in combination with mood stabilizers. And our hope is that these clinical trials will give uh, um, uh, patients um, and clinicians uh, more of an evidence base on how best to use them. 
uh, I think in, in, in my world of, of seeing the interface of mood and addiction so frequently, um, we try to be as um, uh, multi-modal um, in our approach as we can really recognizing that each patient um, is going to have a particular set of motivations and interests and abilities and trying to, to really tailor fit as many evidence-based tools as we can with medications being part of that, um, I, I think is, uh, is, is where we need to go. So the field's moving forward to have more clinical trials and how to use these medicines in combination and at the same time really recognizing um, the need to take these evidence-based data sets and really individualize them to the patient that's in your office on that day. Do you see um, any significant change in how we're educating um, doctors around the prescribing of pain medication and the assessment of pain? Because um, I know that's a huge area in New Hampshire where... Um, there's not a lot of oversight, and I'm not sure how much education doctors um, routinely get around addiction and around pain medication and, and assessment of pain. Well, that's a very interesting question, Mary. I, I wish I could say that I was aware of initiatives to um, help in this area. We, you know, certainly you know, tune our residents to this at the Mayo Clinic of, you know, the potential risk of exposure to certain medications. And again, there is a balance between aggressively, you know, treating acute pain, but cautiously, you know, treating individuals with narcotics long term and, and being very careful to look at the risk-benefit ratio for individuals to carefully talk through uh, how much medication they should be on, what would be warning signs of the medication becoming a problem for them. But clearly this has become a national epidemic in which many people have suffered because they're on high doses that have led to complications in their lives or potential addiction to those medications. And so, you know, that your, your call uh, for more physician education, I think, is an important one. I, I wanted to go back and... Picture too, because a lot of people believe, well, the doctor gave me these medications, I cannot be addicted. Mm. Yes, I think that that can be, you know, a, a common experience by the patient. They're taking something as prescribed, and and yet it certainly becomes a problem for them over time. And uh, it, it speaks to, you know, how these medications affect the brain and how it can begin to change the mechanisms in the brain over time, too, where, you know, the intent for both the patient and for the physician is for this to be very helpful in treating the pain, but something is going on in which the medication becomes something uh, perhaps where there's an increased tolerance, higher doses are needed to help with the pain problem, but then where the mechanisms in the brain begin to change and there's an increasing amount of craving or psychological dependence in addition to the physical dependence. It's, um, I, you know, I, I know that in some treatment programs, um, I've, I've had friends who, who work in them, and they say that the people who come in as a result of addiction to prescribed pain medication um, really present like a different 
clinical challenge than somebody who's addicted to opiates um, that they've gotten through the use of heroin or, or off the street. And right after we go to this next commercial, um, we'll talk briefly about that and learn about what different services that are available at the Mayo Clinic. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Get the latest information in health and wellness when you tune into On the Radio with Dr. Ray. Each week, you'll find out the latest and greatest from both traditional and holistic perspectives. Your host, Dr. Robert Ray, better known as Dr. 90210, is the best known and most sought-after plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills. Dr. Ray, with his co-host, Natalie Day, will help you get the dream body you've always wanted through diet and exercise, not surgery and medicine. On the Radio with Dr. Ray airs live Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. Um, we're talking about the challenges of treating alcoholism and co-occurring psychiatric disorders with Dr. Mark Fry, who is the chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Terry Sneakloff, who is the co-chair of the Division of Addiction, Pain, and Transplant Psychiatry and Psychology, and he's also the director for the Mayo uh, Addiction Services at the Mayo Clinic. Um, before we went to break, I threw that question out about uh, the different clinical presentations between prescribed opiate addiction and maybe heroin use. And yes, Mary, that guys... was a very interesting question. Um, I would see this as, as probably a spectrum and dependent, again, upon comorbid disorders. You know, an example may be someone who um, has a pain problem who begins taking narcotic analgesics, um, they have a predisposition to addiction. They have high tolerance. Increasingly, they're taking higher doses. Their body becomes physically addicted, which anyone's body would who takes narcotics long enough. But for them over time, um, in addition to going to higher doses, they become more preoccupied with taking the medication, and a, a, an addictive syndrome develops 
that may be a very different patient than someone who begins abusing prescription medications and then shifts to routes of abuse, you know, whether it's crushing, uh, snorting, uh, injecting, which give very intense um, reinforcement, uh, very intense high, and it may be much more difficult for the individual to break that addiction. They may need to be in a residential setting where they don't have a source available to them, where they're able to look at all the environmental um, triggers for them to use. So um, the you know, street narcotic addiction with drugs like heroin can be uh, an addiction that can be extremely difficult to break, and this is why treatments like methadone suboxone have been helpful for so many because it can diminish those uh, very strong cravings and prevent the withdrawal for an individual to experience the stabilization of their life and change their lifestyle, decrease the triggers, and become very highly functional and in recovery while on that replacement. So, um, Again, I think to take each one of these situations individually and see how much support care the individual needs to get into recovery. Could you um, share with our listeners a, a little bit about um, what the services are available at the Mayo Clinic? I know people come from all over the world to go to the Mayo Clinic, um, and then how people can get in touch with these services. Well, I'd be very uh, pleased to do that. We um, are proud of our addiction services that began 40 years ago this year at Mayo, uh, where psychiatry works uh, as a multidisciplinary team with our uh, addiction counseling staff, nurses, psychologists. We have training residents, and where we've we've had over the past 40 years uh, residential treatment, where individuals come and stay. Uh, to receive that intensive treatment over the course of a month. Now, that treatment has evolved substantially over the last 40 years as our knowledge, medical knowledge, has increased um, what addiction treatment should be. Approaching addiction as a medical illness, as a brain disease, and incorporating the best evidence-based treatments, the psychological treatments or group treatments, the education uh, medications when appropriate, treating the psychiatric diagnoses. So our most intensive treatment and where we would tend to have more patients come from the region for the nation is a, a residing or residential level program, uh, which we call our intensive addiction program. It's of one month duration. Uh, for some individuals after that month, they stay on for our extended uh, program where they move into the community but continue to receive daily programming uh, three hours a day, uh, generally for another month, sometimes for longer if individuals need that before they're ready to go home. We also have outpatient addiction program at the Mayo Clinic, which primarily serves our, our local and regional population, though some national patients come into town who prefer to do our outpatient program. And then we have a continuing care services that go on for several months uh, for those who are staying on and and living in Rochester and engaging in the recovering community here. 
with each of our levels of care, we have our addiction psychiatrists like myself, those psychiatrists trained in mental illness, also trained in addictions, working with patients, assessing them, uh, you, uh, using psychiatric medications as well as psychotherapy to help with the co-occurring disorders. And, and then, of course, as part of the Mayo Medical Center, we have the availability of all of our medical and surgical services as needed. But this is all housed as part of the, uh, the Mayo Clinic Center in Rochester, Minnesota, for our various Mayo Clinic sites. Are you also a site for residents? Um, can, so can people come there and do a residency in addiction psychiatry? Yes, we have a, a residency training program, which is approximately uh, 40 residents um, who train in general psychiatry. And then we have a fellowship in addictive disorders for those psychiatrists who wish, wish to subspecialize in addiction psychiatry. So we, we have continuously uh, one or two fellows per year, and they're part of our addiction treatment programs working with our patients. I, I might add that as part of our addiction center, we're housed in the same building as our pain program, as our mood disorder programs, um, as our acute psychiatry program, our geriatric psychiatry program. So we're very fortunate to have this uh, wonderful interface, which often serves our patients very well in that if if they come to us and there are other problems that need to be addressed, perhaps even more acutely, they will be able to move back and forth between programs to target uh, what is the you know the imminent concern for them. And Dr. Fry and I will work closely together when we're working with individuals with addictions and mood disorders as he leads that mood disorder effort. Is there any current research that you all are doing on addiction um, or comorbid disorders? Perhaps I can start with that, uh, Mary. Um, you know, I think one of the strengths that we have here at Mayo is just the the, the large multidisciplinary group practice. Uh, we have been fortunate in our department to really have um, some uh, uh, brilliant minds in the field, and Dr. Bob Morris is one that uh, Dr. Schneekoff has already referenced, and I would also add Dr. David Morasic, who's our immediate past chair, really setting the stage to build research infrastructure onto that clinical practice. So we now, on a regular basis, are, are reviewing uh, clinical patients and, and researching how best um, to understand uh, their clinical illness. And this is where we've identified some unique uh, vulnerabilities, we think, for some patients with high levels of craving and high levels of depressive symptoms. And I would underscore that that's really where we can see our research um, making uh, a positive change to the practice in a way that uh, best underscores clinical care. Another one of our large research programs has been the, the Sam Johnson Genomics of Addiction Program here at Mayo Clinic, trying to identify risk genes for developing the disease of alcoholism. Um, and um, over the course of the last several years, a large NIH grant really looking at um, if we can identify correlates to craving, evaluating um, patients uh, with MR spectroscopy, and if there are 
genetic fingerprints or what we call pharmacogenomic patterns of responding well to drugs that are used to treat alcohol dependence. And this study in particular is, is focused on a campersate. So um, we've got, um, I think, a good example of where we really uh, see research is absolutely essential in better understanding the illness to better treat it uh, and, and, um, and linking that up with our clinical programs. Thank you both so much for being a guest uh, guest on our show today. It's been really informative. Just briefly, how can people get a hold of you or the Mayo Clinic? Uh, one of the best routes would be um, our, through our addiction program. It would be 507-255-3636, which is our residing or residential addiction program. Just for uh, general uh, appointments for addiction would be 507 266 5100, and that would be a number that would uh, allow for appointments anywhere within our psychiatry or psychology department. Um, that's wonderful. Thank you both, and have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank Thanks, you so Mary. much for having us, Mary. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.